You're listening to another great show from the Nod Network. Find more great content at nerdod.com. This is Whiskey and Words. I'm David Olson, and today I'm joined by writer Rosemary Collins. Morning, Rosemary. Morning, Dave. Thanks for having me on your podcast. That's a pleasure. So today, Rosemary's here to share some excerpts from her story, How to Change the World, which is an upcoming novel I'm very excited about. Uh, and we're also going to have a sip of the Glenlivet Founders Reserve, something nice and mellow for a rainy Mancunian morning. Welcome, Rosemary. So as a, as a writer, as a, uh, what's your kind of, what's your forte? What's the thing, what do you enjoy the most? Uh, I enjoy writing prose, definitely. I wrote quite a lot of terrible poetry when I was younger, I've sort of, I sort of came to the conclusion that I'm, I like writing poetry, but I'm not very good at it, whereas I could be good at writing prose if I had the, um, the time into doing it. So I've been trying to focus on prose. I've written quite a lot of short stories. Um, I was once highly commended in the HISAC short story competition, which stands for high, Highlands and Islands, but you don't have to live in the Highlands to take part, which is nice. nice. Um, so I was very proud of that. I've written some non-fiction as well. I wrote an online essay about my experiences of, as an autistic woman, which was got a lot of really good engagement with other autistic women, which was really nice. And now I'm working on this novel, How to Change the World, and flexing my writing muscles by writing that. That's great. Yeah, I mean, I, I said before about how poetry is not really for me, so I can relate to that, definitely. And I think that it's nice that you mentioned about uh, the idea of writing uh, as someone with autism and as of what that means to you and how that works. Because I think that there's still there's still a lot of stigma in the world in, for various reasons and various things. And it's just, it's nice to be able to address that sort of a head-on way, um, which, yeah, it's, it's nice to see. So Highlands and, and Islands, yeah. but you didn't live there. No, I didn't. It was a national <laughs> competition. I mean, yeah, I think there's so many competitions out there as well that have these kind of limitations. People think they're a limitation, but actually when you read the small print, they're probably not so much, mm. which is useful. So how to change the world. You've mentioned that it's a, it's a novel that you're working on. It's something to try and flex your muscles and, and, and uh, establish yourself in a different way with your writing. How did, I mean, we'll get onto the, the sections for it in a little bit, but how did you, how did you come about to that? How did you come up with that idea and, and get started with that? Um, well, I've been trying to write a novel for a while. I was working on one which is quite different. It's set in a dystopian future after global warming has become really destructive and about London. London is bitterly divided along racial lines. A fascist dictator takes over, which is increasingly not like science yeah, fiction. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I started writing it, and then I had to abandon it because I just got so depressed. Which I think that's it, isn't it? You go into a, a subject. There's so many, so many writers who I like who have uh that's their kind of focus like i court mccarthy in the road mm. um i saw the, the the film version of that and it was the bleakest thing i've ever seen um and the book is even worse so the idea of you know immersing yourself into a kind of a world of your own creation that can be that intense mm-hmm. must be really draining and i've only i've only ever dipped my, my toes in, you know, sort of uh, dystopian or dark fiction because of the, the being so short. What I write, um, I couldn't imagine writing a, a full tome on that. That's crazy. So uh, we've also, as I mentioned before, a bottle of Glenlivet Founders Reserve, something a bit gentle for the morning. Would you like a little drink? Yes, please. Um, I should tell your readers, I'm a bit, your listeners, even not your readers. I'm a bit of a whiskey drinking virgin. I I pretend to stick to wine and cider, so this is going to be an experience oh. for me, and I might. Completely this is what we it. do here. So yeah, I'll only pour you a small measure. And if you don't like it, I won't be offended. I didn't make this, so. Cool. Cheers. Cheers.
That's actually surprisingly nice. Hmm. It's nice, isn't it? It's really fresh, that one. I like that a lot. I discovered that when I was in, um, I was on my honeymoon in Antigua, uh, and I was at the bar, and of course it's it's a, uh, a Caribbean-themed bar, so everything is rum this and rum that and fruit drinks and cocktails, and I just, you get to a point where it's just too much sugar and booze, and you're like, I just need something, and they had this on the bar, and I found it, and it was lovely, it's really drinkable, yeah, worryingly drinkable mm-hmm. on an evening, but yeah, just really, really nice, really gentle, uh, just that, I mean, it's Glenlivet, so you imagine it's going to be fairly easy to drink anyway. Um, but this one in particular, quite a fan of. Mm. Cool. So, at the risk of jumping straight into it, I have heard you read some of this story before. I very much enjoy it. Um, I was wondering if you could read your first section. We've got three sections today. Uh, if you could read the first section for us now, that'd be amazing. Yeah, sure. So, just to set the scene a bit, um, as I was saying earlier, I was working on this quite um, dystopian novel, which came from my imagination, but then I decided to abandon that and write this, which is drawing more on my own experience, because um, I went on a one of those volunteer abroad trip, white teenagers, safer world trips to Ghana in 2012, and it was, it was a mixed experience. I really enjoyed travelling in Ghana and meeting the people there, but I think in terms of thinking, you know, I could pay a company and go up there and actually make a meaningful difference to community that's facing a lot of challenges, that didn't really work out, so I ended up feeling like I wasn't making a difference, felt quite bad about that. So um, so the main character in this novel, Grace, is a teenage girl She goes, who, again, goes on a volunteer trip to Ghana. Um, she's a she's a committed Christian, which I wasn't at that stage in my life. I'd sort of abandoned the church by then, and so she really believes she has this calling to make a difference. It's about her being a bit disillusioned. So this is near the start of the novel, where she first arrives in Accra, where she's staying at the Comfort. It's the local woman that she's staying with. It's late at night. Um, she's a bit tired and dehydrated and unsure of what's what's going on and what to make of it all and the other characters in this extract are Sydney who's an American girl who's going to be Grace's roommate while she's staying in Ghana and Eben who um, works for the company running the trip and is sort of their supervisor. Okay, um, Sydney opened her door so Grace got out on the other side. They took their luggage out of the boot. Grace stared at the gate wondering if anyone behind it knew they were there. Eben knocked and it swung open. As if that was the signal, a dog began barking, so loudly and frantically it sounded like it was screaming. Grace almost wondered if the gate had opened by itself, but then she saw a girl lurking in the night. Her head was shaven and she wore a dress that had once been white but was now grey. She glanced at Sydney, wondering if she'd noticed. A woman walked slowly forward, leaning on a stick. She wore a kente dress and her hair was streaked with grey. She spoke sharply to Eben and he said something fast back. I will come for you tomorrow at eight o'clock, Eben said, turning to Grace and Sydney. He held out his wrist and tapped his watch. He reminded Grace of the more enthusiastic youth ministers at church. That kind of deliberately over-the-top cheerfulness was often genuine, but still what they were paid for. Please remember eight o'clock. Be sure you are awake. Grace nodded and tried to thank him, but she ended up opening her dry mouth wordlessly, like a fish flapping on the ground. Sydney said, sure, and Eben disappeared into the taxi, which was gone with a sweep of its headlights. Welcome, the woman said. Did you have a good journey? Her English was slower than Eben's, but very serious and precise. Grace and Sydney muttered agreement. The dog was barking without stopping. The woman pressed a hand to her bosom. I am comfort. They gave their names. Come in, don't stand in the street. They stepped through the gate into a courtyard, and Sydney shrieked and stumbled backwards, bumping against Grace's arm. A thin, dun-coloured dog lunged towards them, its wild barks exposing sharp teeth. Its eyes were narrow and red. Grace tried to step backwards, but at that moment the dog stopped as suddenly as if it had hit a glass wall. Beyond the courtyard was a bungalow. 
An electric light on the wall gave out an uneven glow, enough to show a chain around the dog's neck. Although it looked painful, Grace felt glad. Usually I let him off the chain every night at eleven o'clock, Comfort said. If you go out, you can come back after eleven, but take stick. He won't attack you if you take stick. Martha, still behind them, shut the gate. There was a second bungalow on the right, and a Volvo parked next to it. Grace could see a dog that looked like the other dog's silent twin crouched underneath the car. The edges of the yard were lined with shrubs. Grace couldn't make out what kind in the darkness. And beyond them were high concrete walls of chunks of broken soda bottles set in the top. The gate is locked every night and the code on the lock is 752, Comfort continued. Remember, 752. Now you can have your friends from Volunteer International to visit, but no Africa boy, yes? Of course, Sydney said. We would never. Grace shuffled from foot to foot. She wanted to hear the rules of the house, but she wished it could wait until morning, and Comfort would show them how to get water. The guidebook said never to drink the tap water, but to get pure water, never ice, you could buy in bags. Seven five two, she repeated in her head. Insects danced around the light, making humming sounds which mixed with the crackle of electricity. Grace remembered with fear that she had yet to apply any insect repellent. Another piece of advice the guidebook had stressed had been to do that whenever you were outside after dark to avoid malaria. Come, Comfort said. They followed her to the alley between the house and the wall, with Martha behind them. The dog still hadn't stopped barking. She pointed her stick at a huge blue plastic tank. It reminded Grace of a bowser it had to fetch water from for ten days in 2007, when the floods in Gloucester were on the front page of every newspaper, and then caused water shortages by flooding the treatment works. This is the water. You need water to wash, you take it from the tap here. But you don't drink it, yes. It's not good to drink. You take pure water from the house. Grace wondered desperately why they weren't going to the house, if that was a place where they could get water. Comfort carried an immense bunch of keys. She unlocked the door of the outbuilding, then took two keys and gave them to Sydney and Grace. She unlatched the second door behind the first. Its wooden frame was full of rusty meshes, dense as static on a screen. This is for mosquitoes. You must always keep it closed at night. The room had a single bed against each wall. There was a window between them, covered with the same material so you couldn't see out. The room was clustered with a mini-fridge, a fan, piles of what looked like old clothes, and a stack of western paperbacks. A calendar hung on the wall, open at February of that year, and showing a pine-tree-covered mountain that looked like an American national park. Grace admitted her optimism was drying up as fast as her saliva, when Comfort opened the door to the bathroom. The tiled floor was covered in grime, apart from the area around the toilet, which no one had tiled, leaving a patch of concrete. The toilet itself was filthy. In the other corner, there was a shower base, but no shower head or curtain, just two three-gallon buckets. Thank you for that. So again, in, in that section of the story, uh, so you succeed in, in making Grace feel kind of wildly out of her comfort zone. The things are they're, they're familiar, but they're also very different. Um, Sydney, by comparison, feels a bit more comfortable, or at least not so outwardly nervous about things. Was the intention to sort of play both characters off against each other to to kind of accentuate how different they were? Yeah, it was because Sydney becomes quite an important character in the story, and the Kingdom is quite important. And I think you're right, but it's definitely what she's projecting a mask of confidence when she's actually confident, and you see that more as the character goes along. I think what I was trying to bring out in Grace and Sydney is that they form this quite close friendship quite fast because they're in an environment where the other person's the sort of most sort of things all very unfamiliar and strange to them, but they've still got very different personalities. And I was trying to. Um, it's based quite a lot on various friendships I had at various points in my life. Because I'm autistic, I tend to sort of glow on to girls who are more um, socially experienced than me in ways I find quite difficult. So they'd be talking about their 
crushes and boyfriends or whatever and I couldn't really have anything to compare it with. One thing that um, I always remember is that when I was a teenager my friends were all swapping stories about the worst pickup line a boy had ever used of them and you know I didn't really get picked on by boys I was a bit behind the curve so the only thing I could think of to contribute was a scene in the novel 1984 when Winston Smith tells Julia his girlfriend that first time I saw he wanted to murder her and <laughs> so That's quite, quite a pickup line yeah um I also I thought it was quite nice because it's the kind of that the idea of the kind of American bravado, whereas a somewhat more reserved mm-hmm. uh, British attitude. I thought it was quite a nice the kind of the, the stereotype that you expect as mm-hmm. well for people on a holiday wherever that might be that you'd have the kind of the American with the sort of stern, brave face and the the British person maybe a little bit more nervous on the trip. Does not represent me whatsoever. I'm f- very much the nervous one on holidays. I found Sydney quite a fun character to write, but she's this sort of American high school girl, and I think Grace sort of looks up to her quite a bit, but she's older than her, she's in college, she's had boyfriends, which Grace hasn't, so she looks to her for advice on life, but find out that, as it goes on, that Sydney's advice isn't always the best, and she's also a bit messed up in a lot of ways, especially mm-hmm. from her parents' divorce and stuff. And... I see, yeah. Okay. I think as well there was a, a, was a wonderful sense of, uh, sort of home similarity uh, and frightening difference as well. So as the characters are, are welcomed into the, the houses, there's the, the gates, the bungalows, and a Volvo, uh, but also mosquitoes, barking dogs, worry about water and, and thirst. Um, so is the plan here to sort of make the readers feel sort of comfortable and nervous at the same time, along with Grace? I think it was more on the side of nervousness than, than comfortable. I think and I was trying to sort of contrast the quite stereotypes and accurate idea of Africa that a lot of people probably have with what it's actually like, which is certainly something I found when I went to Ghana because um, I think there's this sort of simplistic idea of media that it's all mud huts or whatever and of course that's not the case and in Accra like Grace I was staying in with because these volunteer companies they pay such local people who have quite nice sort of semi-western style houses to to let the volunteers stay with them so it's sort of it's been quite middle class by Ghanaian standards so in a lot of ways comfort is recreating um, life in the west she has a car she has a house um, she's very proud of the house she keeps everything just a lot of security precautions, just worried about thieves. And but on the other hand, obviously, because you're in a country where the infrastructure isn't there yet, Ghana is sort of developing as an expanding economy, but it's it's not obviously it's not sort of behind the curve on it's not up to Western standards of development. So you don't have running water. You have to take precautions against malaria stuff like that. So I think I think in some ways it's almost a bit disappointing. It's like oh, if you're expecting something really different from your average life, it's a bit disappointing to be living somewhere that's a bit like your house at home. But on the other hand, there is still you still have to deal with a level of discomfort that you're not used to and that can be caused quite a lot of culture shock yeah I imagine so I, mean, I think that my my experience of Africa is literally nothing obviously I haven't even been there um, I contrast that with uh, my wife who spent a year living in Tanzania uh, obviously a few years back um, so she is quite comfortable in places that are that different whereas I know full well that I definitely wouldn't be and my knowledge of of the whole continent, because of course you can't you can't say Africa, can you? Because it's, mm. every country is very different as well. But it's it can be. I like the idea of comfort applying Western ideals, and it kind of almost being there. But of course, having that extra layer of having to be safer, having to watch out for mosquitoes, having to do these things um, makes it feel yeah, yeah, it feels close to what you expect, but also very wrong. It's sort of it's one of the impacts of the British Empire and how we fucked up the world as a sort of idea in some former empire countries in Africa in India that there's um, so this idea of wanting to be like the West and copy of the West, but also in some ways it's very difficult because the global economic system is very unfair and set up to try and keep former um, colonial countries 
downtrodden and keep all the good stuff for ourselves. And I mean, I think one thing I was thinking about novel is like writing a novel is to be quite careful writing about because obviously I'm a white person. I don't have that experience of living in a former colonial country and there are lots of very good, very talented writers writing about the aftermath of colonialism on their countries and I wouldn't want to speak over them. So I was, um, so I was trying to get a sense of comfort a bit that she's um, wanting to be like the, the sort of whole sense in Ghana that of sort of the West being idealised a bit and also that's not very health and healthy but also I was mainly looking at it from Grace's perspective as someone who has this idea of Africa but doesn't really live up to reality and yeah yeah that makes sense yeah definitely I think that, that that comes across very well I think it's in that it's, it is very much a this is what she's, this is not what she's expecting it's almost comforting to her but it's still mm. yeah a, a scary place mm. yeah I think that, yeah, contrasting that with the, the second section that you've got, which is a very different character in a very different setting, I think that it's it's quite nice how clearly you defined those differences are in this story in particular. Um, and I wondered if you'd read the second section for us. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Um, so there are two strands in this novel. There's one strand following Grace in Ghana, and there's the other following her father, Duncan, back home. And her mother, Patricia, died of a spinal tumour when Grace was 10. So and that's quite a big thing in her life, because her mother was a big influence on her, who really raised her to be a Christian, to think about how you help others, which is why she's gone to Ghana in the first place, sort of make her mother proud. Um, so it's partly about Grace in, in Ghana and partly following Duncan, um, trying to back in England trying to deal with the fact that his daughter's gone so he's on his own for the first time trying to deal with the death of his wife and trying to deal with problems at work which um, is what comes up in this extract and Duncan works for a radio company called Transmith and there he's an engineer and they're in trouble because no one buys radios anymore so that's what comes up in this extract Transmith, that had probably once paid a marketing company more than Duncan's current salary for the name, was in a business park on the outskirts of Cheltenham. The sun was out for once, and the glass buildings gleamed like mirrored sunglasses. Apart from a few starved-looking trees planted in the gravel beside the car park, it looked like one of the colonies on the moon Duncan had drawn in exercise books as a child, in an imaginary future when humans had left the earth. He told himself there was no point in thinking this today. It was going to be a lazy half-day, with no manager overseeing them since Alan had been summoned into an office with management from London and come back out and shaken all their hands. He felt uneasy about his excitement. He never wanted to be the sort of person who enjoyed having an excuse to do nothing. After he programmed in the code at the door and entered the lobby, he was startled to see John Taylor, the second-in-command after Alan. "'Where were you? I've been calling your mobile all morning.' John was completely bald with a slightly crooked nose, a relic of a very different life to the one he lived now. He wore a tie with Van Gogh's sunflowers on it because it was a present from his children on his last birthday. It looked odd with his grey suit and irritated face. He and Duncan weren't friends exactly and never socialised outside work, but they had a similar bond to soldiers in a trench. John trusted Duncan as an employee who, when he brought bad news, did it with an apology, although it was never a problem of his making. Sometimes Duncan imagined a real friendship with John where he would tell him all the memories that swam beneath the surface of his conscious mind, like parasites haunting the cells of a plant. But he knew it was impossible. John would recoil. I was driving. Well, couldn't you have checked at some point? It's my morning off. I asked, remember? I was taking Grace to the airport. I know. John pinched the bridge of his nose and exhaled sharply between his fingers. I'm sorry, it's just... He lowered his voice. Bloody brands only got here early. What? I know. John began walking towards the lifts. Duncan following him like a water ski dragging behind a boat. 
talk about bad first impressions, he didn't even buzz up. Moira was showing everyone some bloody YouTube video when he walked in. God, John, I'd have been back if I'd have known. They stepped into the lift, the doors sliding shut behind them. It's too late now. There was a shrug in John's voice. His anger was rare and sluggish and went away almost immediately. Is he angry? He wants to call us in for a meeting. Here we are. The lift opened on the fourth floor. When Duncan had first got the job with Transmith, their office building had had a water feature in the lobby. The ceilings of the new building were lower and the carpets and walls were different shades of dirty grey. John bustled Duncan down the corridor. The first door on the right of their office led into the only conference room big enough to hold all the staff. A round table, as if in deference to some Arthurian ideal, took up most of the room, but the man at the far end was clearly the new king. He drew everyone's attention towards him like magnetic currents. McIntyre, right? winged an East End wide boy voice. He was younger than Duncan, with a full head of ungraying black hair and dark stubble on his cheeks. Afternoon. Sorry I'm late. I... I, McIntyre. Brown put on a Scottish accent, which would have annoyed Duncan, except he was taken up with the horror of realising that he couldn't think of his first name. It was one of the saints, Peter. At the same time, he sensed a smirk running around the room. John hesitated next to him. Duncan could tell he didn't want to disrupt the meeting by going for one of the chairs, so they hovered at the end of the office while Brand continued. Right, I want everyone here so we could all start on even ground. I'm not going to make you do all that tell me your name and an interesting fact about yourself bollocks. I'll learn all your names soon enough. I just want to say a bit about me. I'm Tom O'Brand. Duncan tried to catch John's eye to see if he could believe that an adult man who swore and called himself Tomo had installed himself in their office. It had said Thomas on the emails, he remembered now, but John was focusing on Brand with rapt attention. Basically, Brand continued, I started my career in Duplass Finance, got posted in Cairo for about five years, then got headhunted by Transmith. Of course, the first thing I did in this job was look at the figures. I believe in facing the facts, so let's face them. We're up shit creek without a paddle if we carry on with our current business model. Thank you very much. I think that, for me, what I enjoy most uh, in that section is the similarity that I found between uh, Duncan's trip to the office and Grace's trip to the bungalow. Uh, it's sort of they're both entering places that are familiar, but they're also kind of worried about it. Uh, are the, the parallels here kind of the, the point of including what seems to be like an ordinary day in his office alongside Grace's adventure in another continent? Yes, I was very deliberately trying to draw um, parallels between the two plot lines about Grace and Duncan because they're both confronted in different ways of, to me, what is the central question of the book, which is how do you be a good person in this world? Because Which is why it's called How to Change the World, because there's an idea, which um, I grew up with a lot, that um, an individual's actions can have a positive difference and change the world, and I think that's a very nice idea, but it's sort of looking at, in reality, how do you go about that? So in Ghana, Grace sort of thinks she has a very well-meaning idea to try and volunteer in a... Um, sort of poverty-stricken community and try and help, but her ideas are quite naive and quite arrogant, and she sort of runs up against the sort of fact that she can't really make a difference of the way things are set up. And in um, Duncan's storyline, how it develops is that um, Tomo has this idea to try and turn around the failing company by signing a new contract with the uh, um, with the new Egyptian government. It's set in 2012, so not long after the Egyptian Revolution, and mm. it's sort of at the time a lot of Western companies were quite eager to invest in Egypt and didn't really, um, or willing to overlook sort of questions about the human rights record of the new government. So Tom O's idea that I should get into a, make a deal with the Egyptian police to sell them transmitter radios. And then Duncan is quite worried about the idea of the Egyptian police and whether they, what sort of human rights abuse they commit. So it's about him trying to convince his company that we shouldn't make this unethical deal that's going to make them a lot of money. 
Okay. So the idea of challenging uh, the, the the idea behind how you how you would change a world, mm-hmm. whether it would be direct action in a place like that, or whether it would be something a bit wider, uh, sort of like a, a larger scale, mm-hmm. I guess. That's quite nice. And that is something I was thinking, trying to connect with the times we live in now, because people have said a lot following Brexit, following the election of Trump, you know, if you don't like this, the solution is to get involved in your community, get involved in volunteering activism, to try and stand up against things you think are wrong and make a difference every day. And I think that's very meaningful and very important. But the question is, again, is how do you do that? I think it's not always as straightforward as people think. I think it wouldn't have gotten to this mess in the first place if a lot of very well-meaning people didn't turn their eyes to away from a lot of things which have led to sort of some people feeling very disenfranchised and making some voting decisions which oh, I think are very stupid frankly oh, yeah. well, there's that great quote isn't there uh, all it takes for evil to flourish is for good men to do nothing mm. uh, and sadly I've forgotten uh, who, who gave that quote but the the idea behind that you it feels, especially if you mentioned the elections and things, it felt very much like everyone was like well go and do something about it, make change things go and do things, like yes but you need a lot of people to make mm. that kind of change mm. and difference, which is why I think a lot of people get put off from ever trying because they imagine I need to do, I need to be with you know, a million people to make this change. Mm. So what good would I do? Uh, but I like the idea in this story of you having two characters who intention themselves individually wanting to change the world, but having very different routes for that. I think quite often we mean quite well, but we get caught up in our own sort of selfish desires and the conflict and what we, what we know to be right. And... Yeah, definitely. Also, I like the sort of the, the juxtaposition of uh, Grace's journey in Africa with Duncan's trip to a, a drab little office building. Uh, so are we going to see more of uh, Duncan and Grace's relationship with each other, or do we learn that through these very different scenes where they deal with uh, sort of similar issues on a different scale? It's, it was a bit of a challenge because for most of the story, they're separated as point is that they're, um, the separation is a force of a relationship in a new light because Duncan's basically been Grace's only parent and her main the person she's closest to in the world since, since her mother died. And so in some ways they have this very close, very loving relationship, but in other ways they don't know lots about each other as well, deliberately hiding things. They don't want to worry the other person. Um, so it's about how, so we see a bit from the beginning of the story and then Chris goes off to Ghana and then the rest of the time you see them together is through, through flashbacks till the very end. So I was trying to convey all the different layers of our relationship and the different ways they interact <coughs> through that. I, I like the event about the flashbacks. I know that the, the next section you have to read is a, is a flashback scene. Um, and I, I like the idea. I mean, I'm always a fan of flashbacks. I think that you have people who are big fans of them and think they're very useful to, to sort of drive a story forward by looking to the past. And you have others who are quite pure and don't always like that the, uh, that as a, a a method to further a story. But no, I'm I'm a fan of them. So on that, would you share the third section with us? Yeah. Thank you. Um, so this is a flashback from um, it's where we see Grace's mother Patricia. It's from shortly before Patricia was diagnosed with cancer, um, and she's on holiday with um, Grace and Duncan. Her mother slid the strap of her big wicker bag over her shoulder and looked up at the grey clouds and the blue sky. I hope it doesn't rain. Grace ran past her, following a sound like static on the radio, which she knew was the waves. She remembered the sand dunes, too, at the end of the car park. They reminded her of pictures in books about the desert, but they were reassuringly small. You'd never get lost and die first among them. She scrambled to the top, sand slivering beneath her feet and sliding grittily into her socks. The few strands poking out of the slope felt tougher than normal grass as they scratched her legs. 
She scanned a beach from the top of the dune and realised with a shock that she didn't remember it at all, but she didn't recognise that big black rock, half in the sea and half on the sand, the waves breaking around it. Then she saw that the rock had a tail. As she watched, it gave a slow but definite twitch. Four figures were standing next to it, looking tiny in comparison. She ran down the dune to her parents' car, shrieking before she reached them. There's a whale on the beach. What? Her father was lifting a windbreak out of the boot. You must have made a mistake, darling. You couldn't see one from the shore. It's not in the sea, it's on the beach. Grace's mother was leaning against the car, watching the seagulls chase their own trails across the sky. Without looking down, she said, a stranded whale, as if by describing the world she could make it be. The sand left by the retreating tide squelched under their feet, and closer to the whale, Grace could see the water glistening on its black skin, like sweat. Its sides were covered in rough ridges, making lines like the battlements of a castle. Its fingers looked too small to push its bulk through the sea. The figures near the whale were a man, a woman and two big boys, older than Grace, who were standing so close they could have touched it. The younger boy nudged the older and muttered something to him. The woman turned as they approached. She looked fragile beside the whale's bulk, her skinny body and pale blonde hair shivering in the wind. Can you believe this? We get out of the car and then... She put a hand of a nails painted purple over her chest. Oh my God, it's an effing whale. Grace Winston felt her mother beside her do the same. In Sunday school, they said, oh my God, was as bad as swearing. Her father took a step closer to the whale. Have you called anyone? I don't have the number for the whale rescue brigade, the man said. He was taller than Grace's father, his body thick with muscle. The way he spoke made Grace feel angry without knowing why. Her father, however, was calm. The Coast Guard on 999, they'll be the first people to contact. You can't get a signal down here. I'll try at the car park. Her father ran back up the beach. They stood there, not speaking, until a blonde woman asked, Do you reckon it's going to die? We need to rescue it. Grace jumped. Her mother was nearly shouting. She walked past the boys towards the whale, stretching out a hand. Grace wondered if she was going to touch it, and if she'd tell her whether its skin felt scaly or slimy. But her mother's hand stopped, and then the whale thrashed its tail again. It couldn't lift it more than a few inches, but it still fell back down of a crash that Grace could feel shaking under her feet. Her mother and her boys jumped back. Get away from it, the blonde woman called, although they already had. It's dangerous. Right, that does it. Husband sounded relieved to have made the decision. Come on, we'll try at the coast. Two of their sons spoke for the first time. But you said it was going to die. I want to see it. Danny, come on. The woman turned and the boys followed slowly, glancing backwards. Grace's father came back, walking past them. We said we're sending the rescue now. We have to keep it as wet as we can in the meantime. Right. Grace's mother used the same voice as when she was telling people where to put the cakes at the sale, or telling Grace's friends that they had to go home in ten minutes. It made her realise of a shock how long it had been since she'd heard it. We need to bring her water. How many buckets have you got? The man gazed at her. We're leaving. We just said. He continued to talk when Grace's mother said nothing. Look, we've hired scuba equipment for our boys just for the day. We want to get a good session. Her mother was silent for a moment. Then she said, oh, of course. And the man muttered, well, good luck. As soon as she started talking, so the voices overlapped. Then followed his wife and sons up the beach. Grace snuck another look at the whale. It was hard to believe there was anything alive in that great still bulk, let alone that it could die, like the woman said. Charming, her mother muttered when the shrinking figures had nearly reached the sand dunes. And then, in her old cake sale voice, right, buckets. I really like that as the end of that section. Right, <laughs> buckets. I just realised two of the three sections end in buckets because it's about Grace arriving in garnish and so I realised she does have a running shower she's buckets so oh. <laughs> I don't know what significance that is. Yeah. No, I like that section a lot. I like it because so I, I'm a fan of a flashback 
And I like that it's a it's a quite unusual scenario for a character to be in. And for it to showcase the kind of uh, the strength of the mother character in that moment. Like, okay, great, we're doing something about this. I like that a lot. I think that what you're saying about the, the effect uh, that the mother's passing has on them, you can kind of see that from how she's quite driven like that. So I quite like Grace's transition from kind of uh, carefree and excited about being on the beach uh, to scared and serious when the whale's there and it might live or die. Uh, so how we talked before about flashbacks, but how useful do you find them when establishing behaviors for characters? Like, do you think there's a balance that you need to have when using flashbacks to avoid them being used too much? Or Well, this was the first um, bit of a book I wrote um, while I was doing, sort of deciding whether to carry on with a post-apocalyptic novel that I wasn't really feeling anymore or go move on to this other idea I had. I wrote this short story about this family finding a stranded whale on the beach as sort of a sort of prequel to the story I was planning. I sort of play around with these characters based on the writing about them and I found that I was, so I wanted to write some more. Um, so yes, I definitely agree with you that flashbacks are very useful and a lot of my favourite um, novels or other works of fiction have non-linear structures that are unstuck in time, as Kurt Vonnegut would say. And um, another, was another writer I was em- trying to emulate, or not as good as her in writing, this was Margaret Atwood, because she quite often writes novels with lots of little um, chaps that show different moments and some, some in the present, some in the past, and that's how I was trying to structure this novel. Um, and I agree with you that there is a danger about um, with flashbacks. And they're, they're quite needs in this book because Patricia is such an important character that she's because she's dead in the main novel. We have to have flashbacks to show who, what she was like and what she meant to Grace and Duncan. And um, I agree there is a danger of letting your narrative get bogged down in, in making the past more interesting than the present. So I'm trying to... I think the challenge of all writing is to stick to... Once you use a few words you can get away with, just stick to the main um, moment or the main scene that most illuminates what you're trying, the story you're trying to tell. So I was trying to stick just a few key moments and suggest the whole story of Duncan and Patricia's marriage, Grace's relationship with Patricia from that. Okay. Yeah, because you show, you show the mother as this, this strong matriarchal figure. Uh, and then was there, was there the parallel between her and what you see in Comfort in that first section... Was that an intentional one, or did the similarities develop just as a, a byproduct of the story you were telling? I didn't really think about that until you brought it up just now. Um, but yeah, I think I think in a whole Grace's journey to Africa is sort of about her trying to reconnect with and rediscover her mother by doing something she thought her mother would approve of. And I think she turns to lots of different female figures to sort of provide that nurturing female influence she'd never had. Like part of the reason why she bonds with Sydney is because um, once she was a teenager, she never had a mother to talk to her about puberty, boys and sex and stuff or something she just wouldn't feel comfortable asking her dad about. So, And she thinks of Sydney as a good source of advice on that. And also she, she has comfort and also she befriends um, Gifty, who's another young woman in Ghana. So it's, um, so yeah, I think she's, she's, she's turned to lots of different substitute mother figures, but none of them can really give her what she's really missing, which is the absence of her actual mother. Oh, great. So she, there's, throughout the story, there are a number of characters mm. who she tries to kind of imprint upon mm. in that. Okay, cool. Actually, yeah, I think that I, I think why I'm excited about this story is because you've taken this, you know, I know I have a lot of friends who have done very similar things and have gone to Africa or other countries for uh, charitable works. And I think that it's a story which they all come back with the same tales, you know, they stayed in the house, they did these things, but the fact that you're going to approach it and you're going to explore kind of why a character would do that, what they achieve while they're there, who they meet, how that works out, I think that's going to be quite an interesting one. So I was, yeah, I was sort of trying to tell a story about our generation, if I don't sound too pretentious, because I mean, there's a lot of people that's really taken off this vogue for 
going out to um, being the gap yard kid, going out to um, a developing country and sort of volunteering. I think it can potentially be a wonderful thing to do. Maybe it's more for people who have real skills or needed, like doctors or mm. something, if you can. And I think uh, there are lots of companies that just bring up and just the idea of paying a fee to do charity work is just bizarre. And so I think, uh, I mean, I'm not the only person who tells being quite disillusioned and quite disappointed. And yeah, I think, I mean, I think, you know, you absolutely should be aware of um, the situation of other parts of the world because obviously I mean I've lived a very privileged existence as a middle class westerner so is Grace and so I think you should try and use that to try and ask how we can change the society make it fairer and better but also you're probably not going to do that by just going to a community you know nothing about with no particularly relevant skills and I think that can be quite arrogant and quite a neo-colonialist idea and maybe you'd achieve more by it's less going to say you achieve more by volunteering with an organisation in the actual town where you live rather than going out to Africa and they call it voluntourism don't yeah, they exactly, yeah exactly voluntourism yeah it's a, it's a strange one because you think like there's this idea that even the small actions can be good ones and you can make a difference. But at the same time, are you making a difference? And if you're paying to do it, are you paying the right people? You know, is mm, it going to the right places? Mm. There's a lot of ethical questions, I yeah. think, with trying to do the right thing mm. and trying to do the right thing in, in the right way. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. I, I, I enjoy that story and I enjoy uh, the way you tell it in the small details as well, which is nice. So you mentioned earlier on that as a woman with autism, it, it influences some of the relationships and things that you've had and the way you do. Do you find that when you write characters, does it does it change the way that you approach those characters' behaviours as well? It does. I do think I do see the world differently because I have autism. And also, it's something that was diagnosed only only last... Uh, well, only a couple of years ago now, it was in 2015. And so sort of all through my childhood and teenage years, I had a sense of I'm different, I have trouble making friends, which was, it was okay when I was in primary school and secondary school, I was bullied quite a lot and didn't really have a great time. And so, and I think part of the reason was because all the symptoms recognised autism are geared up towards um, boys and men. So there are a lot of autistic women who go undiagnosed and can't access any help. And I was I was actually assessed for autism as a child and they just basically decided she has some symptoms which doesn't have this condition. And it would have made a real difference if I got that diagnosis and got that special needs help I needed. But anyway, that's a bit of a rant. And, but, and I do feel that I see other people as a bit alien in some ways. And and so it does worry me as a writer because writing, especially sort of writing I always do, is all about getting into the other person's skin and understanding how they see the world. And, but, um, there's different ways to try and go about that. I find, I did, um, a writing workshop while I was at University of Gillian Slovo, the writer who was, was fantastic. She was really good. She ran this course at the University of York where I was studying. And one thing, she, one exercise she gave us to do was when you write about a character, write, um, answer some questions, do one of those sort of lists of um, character questions like what's your name what do you do for a living what's your worst memory stuff like that but she said don't answer them as separate questions answer them as a story like sort of write a monologue in your character's voice saying my name is so my name is Duncan I work for a radio company and my worst memory was when my wife died and so, so they connect together and you can really get a sense of a character's voice from that and so I find stuff like that quite helpful just if you flesh in the details of a character's life a personality and everything then it helps me sort of see them more as a person and um, and I think also being autistic someone's giving quite a valuable perspective because if you see things quite differently you can sort of question the rules of society like why did she do that like why do people always say I'm fine and you ask how you are even if you're not fine that sort of thing so I think it can be quite a lot of good writing comes from seeing the world differently from what anyone else has done before and I do like to try and try and ask how can we do this differently I don't want to just write the same stuff as everyone else that's great I think that all that's all, all what writers are, are hoping for is to mm. find a different way to tell the same story isn't it? They always say there's only seven stories in the world. We just tell them in different ways. Yeah, exactly. Uh, no, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that with us today. I really appreciate it. Um, you can find uh, Rosemary on Twitter, 
uh, Rose was at uh, rosemaryc underscore 24 uh, if you want to ask her any more questions about her writing. Uh, and I really hope we're going to see how to change the world out there soon because heaven knows we need it. But thank you, Rosemary, for being with us today. And thank you very much for having me. And thank you for the whiskey. I liked it more than I was expecting. Thank you. And thank you to the Glenn Levitt for the Founders Reserve. That was a very enjoyable little drop there. Uh, so thank you again. Uh, and we hope to see you all again next time. Bye.